This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by NVIDIA. As you no doubt know, deep learning, which is of course the fastest growing segment in artificial intelligence, was really only a theory until leading researchers around the world started using NVIDIA's GPUs. Now entire industries are being redefined from healthcare to retail. NVIDIA celebrates the innovators that are turning moonshots into real results, including those featured in this Voices in AI episode. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Gregory Piotetsky. He's a leading voice in business analytics, data mining, and data science. 20 years ago, he founded and continues to operate a site called KD Nuggets about knowledge discovery. It's dedicated to the various topics he's interested in. Many people think it's a must-read resource. It has over 400,000 regular monthly readers. He holds uh, an MS and a PhD in computer science from NYU. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Baron. Glad to be with you. I always like to start off with, with uh, I guess, definitions, just because you know, we're, we're in such a nascent uh, field in the grand scheme of things that people don't necessarily start uh, off agreeing with what terms mean. What do you, how do you define artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is really machines doing things that people think require intelligence. And by that definition, the borders of the goalpost of artificial intelligence are constantly moving. It was considered very intelligent to play checkers back in 1950s. Then there was a program. Next boundary was playing chess and uh, then computers mastered it then people thought you know playing go would be incredibly difficult or driving cars so general artificial intelligence is the field that tries to develop intelligent machines and you know what is intelligence i'm sure we will discuss but it's usually in the eye of the beholder well you're you're right that you know, I think a lot of the problem with the term artificial intelligence is that there is no consensus definition of what intelligence is. So are you saying, if we're constantly moving the goalpost, it sounds like you're saying we don't have systems today that are intelligent. No, on the contrary, we have lots of systems today that would have been considered amazingly intelligent 20 or even 10 years ago. Uh, and the progress is such that I think it's very likely that those systems will exceed our intelligence in many areas, you know, maybe not everywhere, but in many narrowly defined areas, they've already exceeded our intelligence. Yes, so we have many systems that are somewhat useful. We don't have any systems that are fully intelligent, possessing what is a new term now, AGI, artificial general intelligence. Those systems remain still ahead in the future. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about an AGI. So we have a set of techniques that we use to build the, the weak or narrow AI we use today. Do you think that achieving an AGI is just continuing to apply, to evolve those faster chips, better algorithms, um, bigger data sets and all of that? Or do you think that an AGI really is qualitatively a different thing? 
I think AGI is qualitatively a different thing, but I think that it is not only achievable, but also inevitable. Um, humans are also can be considered as biological machines. So unless there is something magical that we possess that we cannot transfer to machines, I think it's quite possible that you know the smartest people can develop some of the smartest algorithms and machines and eventually achieve AGI. And I'm sure it will require additional breakthrough, just like deep learning was a major breakthrough that contributed to significant advances in state of the art. I think we'll see several such breakthroughs before AGI is achieved. So if you read uh, the press about it and, and you look at people's predictions on when we might get an AGI, they range, in my experience, from five to 500 years, uh, which is a pretty telling fact alone that, that that's that kind of range. Do you care to even throw a dart in that general area? Like, do you think you'll live to see it or not? <laughs> uh, well, uh, my uh, specialty in data, as data scientists is making predictions. And I know when we don't have enough information. So I think nobody really knows. And I have no basis on which to make a prediction. I hope it's not five years. And, you know, I think our experience as society shows we have no idea how to make predictions for 100 years from now. Uh, it's very instructive to find uh, so-called futurology articles, so things that were written 50 years ago about you know, what will happen in 50 years and see how naive were those people 50 years ago. So I don't think we would be very successful in predicting 50 years. So I, I have no idea how long it will take, but I think it would be more than five years. So some people think that what makes us intelligent, intelligent or, or an indispensable part of our intelligence is our consciousness. Do you think a machine would need to achieve consciousness in order to be an AGI? We don't know what is consciousness. Uh, I think machine intelligence would be very different from human intelligence, just like uh, airplane flight is very different from a bird. You know, both airplanes and birds fly. The, bo the flight is governed by the same laws of uh, aerodynamics and physics, but they use very different principles. So, um, you know, the airplane flight is, does not copy bird flight. It is inspired by it. So I think in the same way, we're likely to see that machine intelligence doesn't copy human intelligence or human consciousness. Uh, what, you know, what exactly is consciousness is more a question for philosophers, but probably it involves some form of self-awareness. And we can certainly see that machines and robots can develop self-awareness. And you know, self-driving cars already need to do some of that. They need to know exactly where they're located. They need to predict what will happen if they do something, what will other cars do. So they have a form, what is called like a um, model of the mind, a mirror intelligence. Um, you know, one interesting anecdote on this topic is that when Google's self-driving car 
was originally uh, started uh, the experiments, it couldn't cross the intersection because it was always yielding to other cars and it was not it was following the rules as they were written, but not the rules as people actually execute them. And so it was stuck at that intersection supposedly for an hour or so. Then the engineers adjusted the algorithm so it would better predict what people will do and what it will do, and it is now able to negotiate the intersection. So it has some form of self-awareness. So I think, you know, other robots and uh, machine intelligence will develop some form of self-awareness and whether it will be called consciousness or not will be to our uh, descendants to discuss. Well, I think that th there is, I think, an agreed upon definition of consciousness. I mean, you're right that nobody knows uh, how it comes about, but it's it's qualia, right? It's experiencing things. It's, it's, if you've ever had that sensation when you're driving and you kind of space, and then all of a sudden, you know, two miles later, you kind of snap to and think, oh my gosh, I had no, no recollection how I got here. Um, that, that time you were driving kind of often, that's intelligence without consciousness. And then when you kind of snap to, and all of a sudden you're aware, you're experiencing the world again. You know, do you think a computer can actually experience something because wouldn't it need to experience the world in order to, to really be intelligent well computers if they have sensors and actuators already experience the world the self-driving car is experiencing the world through uh, its radar and uh, lidar and various other sensors and so on so uh, they do experience and they do have sensors um, I think it, it's not useful to debate computer consciousness because it's like a question of, you know, how many angels can fit on a pin of a needle. I think what we can discuss is what they can or cannot do, what exactly they, in, you know, how they experience it is more a question for philosophers. Hmm. So... A lot of people are worried, you know, you know all of this, of course, there's, there's two big kind of buckets of worry about um, artificial intelligence. The first one is that it's going to take human jobs and they're going to have mass unemployment and any number of dystopian movies kind of play that scenario out. Um, and then other people say, no, every technology that's come along, even disruptive ones like electricity and the mechanical power replacing animal power and all of that, we're, we're merely then turned around and used by humans to increase their productivity, and that's how you get increases in standard of living. On, on that question, where do you come down? I'm much more worried than I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that technology will progress. Uh, what I'm concerned with, it will lead to increasing inequality uh, and increasingly unequal distribution of wealth and benefits. Um, in Massachusetts, there used to be many toll collectors, and toll collectors is not a very sophisticated job, and recently they were eliminated, and the machines that eliminated them didn't require full intelligence. It's basically just you know RFID sensor. So we already see many jobs being eliminated 
by simpler form of automation. And what society will do about it is not clear. I think the previous disruptions had much longer time span. Now, when people like, you know, the stall collectors being laid off, they don't have enough time to retrain themselves to become, let's say, computer programmers or doctors. Um, what I like, what to do about it, I'm not sure, but I like a proposal by Andrew Ng, who was, uh, you know, from Stanford, Coursera, and uh, Baidu, and he proposed a modified version of basic income that you know, people who are unemployed and cannot find jobs get some form of basic income, but not just to sit around, but they would be required to learn new skills and learn something new and useful. So maybe that would be a possible solution. So do you, do you really think that when you look back across time, that, you know, the United States, I, I can only speak to that, went from generating 5% of its energy with steam to 80% in just 22 years. Electrification happened electrifyingly fast. The minute we had engines, it was wholesale replacement of, of animals. It would do so much more efficient. Isn't it actually the case that when these disruptive technologies come along, they're so empowering that they're actually adopted incredibly quickly? And, 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 and again, just talking about the U.S., unemployment for 230 years has been between 5 and 9%, other than the Great Depression. But in all the other time, it, it, never, it never bumped when these highly disruptive um, technologies came along. It didn't cause unemployment generally to go up, and, and they happened quickly, and they eliminated an enormous number of, of positions. Why do you think this one is different? Uh, well, for, uh, I guess, uh, what the main reason I think it is different is because it is qualitatively different. I mean, previously, the machines that came like, you know, the steam and electricity driven, they would automate some of the manual work and people could climb up on the pyramid of skills to do more sophisticated work. But now the artificial general intelligence uh, sort of captures this pyramid of skills and it now competes with people on the cognitive skills. And it potentially it can climb to the top of the pyramid. So there would be nowhere to climb to exceed it. And once you copy, once you generate, you know, one general intelligence, it's very easy to copy it. So you would have a very large number, let's say, of very intelligent robots who could do very large number of things. There would so still be need for people to do other things. It just very hard to retrain, um, let's say, coal miner to become, uh, let's say, producer of YouTube videos. Well, that isn't really how it ever happens, is it? I mean, that's sort of a kind of a rigged setup, isn't it? What, what matters is can everybody do a job a little bit harder than the one they have? Because the, the maker of YouTube videos is uh, a film student and then somebody else goes to film school and then the, the, the junior college professor um, decides to, I mean, everybody just goes up a little bit. You don't, you never take 
uh, one group of people and train them to do an incredibly radically different thing, do you? Well, I, I don't know about that exactly, but to return to your analogy, you mentioned that in the United States for 200 years, uh, the pattern was such, but you know, United States is not the only country in the world, and 200 years is a very small part of our history. If we look at several thousand years and look at what's happening on Earth, we see there are very complex things. You know, unemployment rate Middle Ages was much higher than five to ten percent. So I don't think. Well, I, I think I think the important thing. And the reason I use 200 years is because that's the period of, of industrialization that we've seen and automation. And so the argument is artificial intelligence is going to automate jobs. So you really only need to look over the period. You've had other things automating jobs to say what happens when you automate a lot of jobs. I mean, by your analogy, wouldn't, wouldn't the invention of the calculator have put mathematic, mathematicians out of business? I mean, like with, 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 with ATM machines, an ATM machine, uh, you know, in theory, replaces a bank teller, and yet we have more bank tellers today than we did when the ATM was introduced, because because that tool allows banks to open more branches and hire more tellers. I mean, like, is it really as simple as, well, you built this tool, now there's a machine's doing a job, a human did, and now you have an unemployed human. And is that really how you? Well, I mean, is that kind of the the only force at work? No, of course it's not simple. It would. There are many forces at work, uh, and you know the forces that resist change, as we've seen from, you know, Luddites in 18th century, and now you know there are people, uh, for example, coal mining industry who want to go back to coal mining, even though new technology. Of course, it's not as simple. What I'm saying is, um, we only had few examples of industrial revolutions, and. As you know, data scientists, I know it's very hard to generalize from few examples. It, it's true that past technologies have generated more work. It doesn't follow that this new technology, which is different, will generate more work for all the people. It may very well be different. So we cannot rely on three or four past examples to generalize for the future. Fair enough. Um so let's talk, if we can, about uh, how you spend your days, which is in, in data science. What, what are some recent advances that you think are, have kind of materially changed uh, the job of a data scientist? Are there ones? And, and are there more things that you can kind of see that are about to change it again? Like, how is that job evolving as technology changes? Yes, well, data scientists now live in the golden age of the field. Uh, there are now uh, more powerful tools that make <coughs> data science much easier. Uh, you know, tools like, you know, Python and R. And uh, Python and R both have very large ecosystem of tools like, you know, scikit-learn, for example, in case of uh, Python or you know whatever Hadley Wickham comes up in the case of uh, R. Uh, there are tools like you know Spark and various things on top of that that allow data scientists to access very large amount of data. Uh, so it's much easier and much faster for data scientists to build models. The danger for data scientists is again is automation because as those tools make it easier and easier, and soon uh, they make um, the work 
you know, large part of it automated. In fact, there are already companies like Data Robot and others uh, that um, allow business users who are not PhD data scientists just to plug their data and, you know, Data Robot or their competitors just generate the results. No data scientists needed. Uh, that is already happening in many areas. For example, ads on the internet are automatically placed and there are algorithms that make uh, millions of decisions per second and build you know, lots of models. Again, no human involvement because humans just cannot build millions of models a second. So there are many areas where this automation is already happening. And recently, I had a poll on KD Nuggets asking when... Do you think data science work will be automated? And the median answer was about 2025. So although this is a golden age for data scientists, I think they should enjoy it because who knows what will happen in the next eight to 10 years. So when um, Mark Cuban was talking about the first, he gave a talk earlier this year and he said the first trillionaires will uh, be in businesses that utilize AI, but he said something very interesting, which is, he said, if he were coming up through university again, he would study philosophy. And that's how, that's the last thing kind of, it's going to be automated. What would you, what would you suggest uh, a young person today listening to this? What do you think they should study in the, in the cognitive area that um, is either blossoming or isn't likely to go away? Well, I think uh, what will be very much in demand is at the intersection of, uh, you know, of humanities and technology. Uh, if I was younger, I would still uh, study machine learning uh, and databases, which is actually what I've studied for my PhD 30 years ago. Uh, I probably would study more mathematics, uh, the deep learning algorithms that uh, making tremendous advances are very mathematically intensive. And the other aspect is uh, kind of maybe the hardest to automate is human intuition and empathy, understanding what other people need and want and how to best connect with them. I don't know how much that can be studied, but if you know, philosophy or social studies or poetry is the way to it, then young, I would encourage young people to study it. So I think need a balanced approach, not, not just technology, but humanities as well. So I'm, I'm intrigued that our DNA is, um, I'm, I'm going to be off here, whatever I say. I think it's about 740 meg. It's on that order. But when you look at how much of it we share with, say, a banana, it's, you know, 80-something percent. And then how much we share with um, a chimp, is, you know, 99 percent. So this, this somewhere in that 1 percent, that 7 or 8 meg of code that uh, tells how to build you is the secret to artificial general intelligence, presumably. Um, is it possible that the code to do an AGI is really quite modest and simple. I'm not simple, but, but it isn't 
you know, there, you know, there are two different kind of different camps in the AGA where one is that humans are a hack of a hundred or 200 or 300 different skills that, that you put them all together and that's us. Another one is, you know, we had Pedro Domingos on the, um, on the show and he had a book called the master algorithm, which posits that there is an algorithm that can solve any problem or any solvable problem the way a human is where, where on that kind of spectrum would you fall uh, and do you think there is, you know, a, a simple answer to an AGI? I don't think there is a simple answer. Um, actually, I'm a good friend with Pedro, and I moderated his uh, webcast on, on his book last year. But I think that the master algorithm that he looks for may exist, but it does not exclude having lots of additional specialized skills. I think there is very good evidence that there is such a thing as general intelligence in humans that you know, people, for example, may have different scores on SAT on verbal and math. I know that my verbal score would be much lower than my math score. I know other people's for whom it's the reverse, but it usually, if you're above average on one, you would be above average on the other. And likewise, if you're below average on one, you would be below average. So, so people seem to have some general skills. And in addition, there are lots of specialized skills. You know, you can be a great uh, chess player, but have no idea how to play music or vice versa. So I think there are, there are some general algorithms and there are lots of specialized algorithms that leverage special structure of the domain. And maybe uh, when, so you can think of it this way, uh, that when people were developing chess playing programs, they initially developed, applied some general algorithms, but then they found that they could speed up those programs by building very specialized hardware that was very specific to chess. Likewise, people, when they start a new skill, they approach it generally, then they develop the specialized expertise, which speeds up their work. So I think, likewise, it could be with intelligence, maybe some general algorithm, but it will have ways to develop lots of special skills that would leverage whatever specific to a particular task. Broadly speaking, I guess data science relies on three things. It relies on, on hardware, faster and faster hardware, better and better data, you know, more of it and labeled better, and then uh, better and better algorithms. If you kind of had to put those three, three things side by side, where are we most efficient? Like, if you could just like really amp one of those three things way up, what would it be? That's a very good question. Um, with current algorithms, it seems that more data produces much better results than uh, smarter algorithms, uh, especially if it is relevant data. So, for example, for image recognition, it was a big quantitative jump when deep learning is trained on millions of images as opposed to thousands of images. But I think what we need for next big advance is having somewhat smarter algorithms. Uh, 
one big shortcoming for deep learning is again it requires so much data people seem to be able to learn from very few examples and the algorithms that we have are not yet able to do that uh, in algorithms defense I have to say that you know when we say people can learn from very few examples we assume you know those are adults and they've already spent maybe you know 30 or 40 years of training uh, interacting with the world so maybe if algorithms can spend you know some years training interacting with the world they'll acquire enough knowledge so they'll be able to generalize to other similar examples yes i think probably data then algorithms and then hardware that would be my word then. so you you're alluding to transfer learning which is something humans seem to be able to do like like you said you could show a person um who's never seen you know, an Academy Award, what that little statue looks like. And then you could show them photographs of it in the dark, on its side, underwater, and they could pick it out. And, and what you just said is very interesting, which is, well, yeah, we only had one photo of this thing, but you had a lifetime of learning how to recognize things underwater and in different light and all of that. How, what do you think about transfer learning for computers, do you think we're going to be able to use the data sets that we have that are very mature, like the image one or handwriting recognition or speech translation? Are we going to be able to use those to solve completely kind of unrelated problems? Is there, is there some kind of meta-knowledge buried in, in those things we're doing really well now that we can apply to things we don't have good data on? I think so. I think because the world itself is the best representation. So uh, for recently, I read a paper that applied uh, this negative transformation to ImageNet, and turns out that a now uh, deep learning system that was trained to recognize, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but let's say cats, would not be able to recognize negatives of cats because the negative transformation is not part of its repertoire. But that is very easy to remedy if you just add negative of every image to the training. So I think there is maybe a large but finite number of such transformations that humans are familiar with, like you know, negative and rotated and other things. And it's quite possible that by doing such transformation to you know, very large existing databases, we could teach uh, those machine learning systems to achieve and exceed human levels, because humans are also not perfect in recognition. You know, we, earlier, uh, this conversation we're having, we're, we're taking human knowledge and how the people do things, and we're kind of applying that to computers. Is that something that, do you think, AI researchers learn much from brain science? Do they learn much from psychology? Or, or is it more just that's handy for telling stories or kind of making, helping people understand things? But, but as you started at the very beginning, it's airplanes and, and birds we're talking. There really isn't a lot of mapping between how humans do things and how machines will do them. Yes, by, by the way, the airplanes and birds analogy, I think, is due to Jan LeCun. And I think... Uh, some AI researchers are very much inspired by how humans do things, and the prime example is Jeff Hinton, 
who is amazing researcher, uh, not only because of what he achieved, but uh, he has extremely good understanding of you know both computers and human consciousness and uh, several talks that I've heard of him and you know, some uh, conversation afterwards he sort of uh, suggested he uses his knowledge of how human brain works as an inspiration for coming up with new algorithms again not copying them but inspiring the algorithms so to answer your question yes I think human consciousness is very relevant to understanding how uh, intelligence could be achieved and as Jeff Hinton says that's the only working example we have at the moment what's something what would be an example of you know we were able to kind of do chess in AI so easily because there were so many not so easily obviously people worked very hard on it but uh, because there were so many records well-kept records uh, of, of games that would be training data. We can do handwriting recognition well because we have a lot of handwriting and it's been transcribed. We do speech rec we do translation well because there's a lot of training data. What are some problems that would be solvable if we just had the data form and we just don't have it, nor do we have any good way of getting it? Like what's a solvable problem that really our only impediment is, can't, we, we, we don't have the data. I think, at the forefront of such problem is medical diagnosis because there are um, many um, there are many diseases where the data already exists it's just maybe not collected in electronic form uh, there is a lot of uh, genetic information that could be collected and correlated with both diseases and treatment what works it's Again, it's not yet collected, but you know, Google and 23andMe and many other companies are working on that. Um, medical radiology uh, recently witnessed great success of a startup called Inlytic, where they were able to identify tumors using deep learning on almost with the same quality as human radiologists. So I think kind of in, in medicine and healthcare, we'll see big advances and you know in many other areas where there is a lot of data we, we can also see uh, big advances uh, but you know the flip side of of data um, I hope we can touch on it is people uh, at least on some part of the political spectrum are losing connection with what is actually true or not uh, last year's election so uh, tremendous amount of fake news stories that seem to have you know, significant influence. So while it, on one hand we're training machines to do a better, better job in recognizing what is true, you know, many humans are losing the ability to recognize what is true and what is happening. Just witness denial of climate change on, by you know, many people in this country. You mentioned text analysis on your LinkedIn profile. I just saw that that was something that uh, you evidently know a lot about. Is the problem you're describing solvable? I mean, if you had to say the number one problem with the World Wide Web is you don't know what to believe. You don't know what's true. 
and the, the, you just don't have a way necessarily of sorting results by truthiness. Do you think that that is a machine learning problem or is that not one? Is it going to require moderation in humans and or, or, or truth is not a, a defined enough concept on which to train 50 billion web pages? I think the technical part certainly can be solved uh, from machine learning point of view, but the World Wide Web does not exist in vacuum. It is embedded in human society, and as such, it suffers from all the advantages and problems of humans. So if uh, there are human actors that will find it beneficial to bend the truth and use the World Wide Web to convince other people what they want to convince them, they will find some ways to leverage the algorithm. So the algorithm by itself is not a panacea as long as there are humans with all of our good and evil intentions around it. But do you think it's really solvable? Because I remember this Dilbert comic strip uh, I saw once where um, Dilbert's at, at, on a sales call and the person that he's talking to says, your salesman says your product cures cancer. And Dilbert says, that is true. And uh, the guy's like, wait a minute, it's true that it solves cancer, cures cancer or it's true that he said that? And so it's like that statement, your salesperson said your product cures cancer is a true statement. But I mean, like that subtlety, that nuance, that, that, well, it's true, but it's not true aspect of it. I just wonder, it doesn't feel like uh, chess, you know, this, this, this very clear cut, win, lose kind of situation. And I just wonder, even if everybody wanted the true results to rise to the top, could we actually do that? Again, I think technically it is possible. Of course, you know, nothing will work perfectly, but humans also do not do uh, perfect decisions. It's, for example, Facebook um, already has an algorithm that can identify uh, clickbait uh, and it's, you know, one of the signals is relatively simple. Just look at the number of people, let's say, who look at a particular headline, let's say, click on a particular link, and then how much time they spend there or whether they return quickly back. If the headline, like, nine amazing things you can do to cure X, and you go to that website and it's something completely different, then you'll quickly return and your behavior will be different than if you go to a website that matches the headline. And, you know, Facebook and Google, other sites, they can measure those signals and they can see which um, uh, title, which, which headlines are deceptive. The problem is that uh, the ecosystem that has evolved uh, seems to reward capture and attention of people and you know such um, kind of headlines are more likely to be shared um, kind of what captures attention of people generates emotion as you know either anger or some cute things so we're evolving toward internet of you know anger partisan anger and uh, cute kittens that's you know the two 
uh, extreme axis of what gets attention. So, uh, so I think, yeah, the technical part is solvable. The problem is that, again, there are humans around it that make a very different motivation from you and me, and uh, it's very hard to uh, work when your enemy is using you know, various advanced cyber weapons against you. Do you think nutrition may be something that would be really hard as well? Because <clears throat> no two people, you know, you eat, you eat uh, however many times a day, how many ever different foods, and there's nobody else who does that same combination on the planet, even for seven consecutive days or something. Um, do you think that nutrition is a solvable thing, or are there too many variables for there to ever be a data set that would, that would be able to say, if you eat broccoli, chocolate, ice cream, and go to the movie at 6.15, you'll live longer? I think that is certainly solvable. Again, the problem is that humans are not completely logical. I mean, that's our beauty and our problem. Uh, people know what is good for them, uh, but sometimes they just want something else. We sort of have our own animal instincts that are very hard to control. That's why, you know, all the diets work, but just not for a very long time. People who go on a diet very frequently and then, you know, find that it did work and go on it again. Yes, yeah, so technically, so inform informational nutrition can be solved. How motivationally to convince people to follow good nutrition, that is a much, much harder problem. All right, well, it looks like we are, we are out of time. Um, would you go ahead and tell uh, the listeners how they can keep up with you? Go ahead and your website and any, any ways that they can follow you, how they can get a hold of you and all of that? Yes, uh, thank you, Byron. So you can uh, find me uh, on Twitter on uh, KD Nuggets and visit uh, the website kdnuggets.com. Uh, we uh, aim to be kind of a magazine for data scientists and machine learning professionals. We publish only a few interesting articles a day. And uh, hope you can read it, or if you have something to say, contribute it. All right. And thank you for the interview. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I'd also like to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this episode, NVIDIA. NVIDIA is, after all, the inventor of the GPU, which has ignited the modern AI era. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might want to check out their AI podcast called AI Podcast. It's available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.